0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. Today, my guest is Benjamin Teitelbaum, author of the book, War for Eternity. Inside Bannon's Far Right Circle of Global Power Brokers, published by Day Street Books in April 2020. Welcome, Benjamin. It is a pleasure to be with you, Dr. Mago. Yeah, it is uh, a pleasure uh, to have you on the program. I there's there's so many points of intersection uh, with this book. I mean, I, I'm I'm very very fascinated by the whole. Uh, uh, nationalism and Steve Bann- uh, Bannon, and then you, the, the topics you, you, you delve into with traditionalism is something I'm very interested in as well. And then uh, ethnography, uh, a question of ethnography, because I'm also a trained anthropologist. So really, there's, there's cool. just tons. And, and then I was also, uh, you know, a, a hardcore, uh, you know, hardcore and... Uh, Thrash metal found in the '80s.
0: <laughs> so, uh,
1: so, so this, yeah. So, tons, tons, tons of uh, points of connection. But yeah, so um, yeah. I'm joining you from Trinidad and Tobago
0: uh, right now. Uh, and where are you joining us from? I'm almost 9,000 feet above sea level in wow in the Rocky Mountains, just west of Boulder, Colorado. Right, it must be cold. It it is cold. It, it's warmer than it should be, though. Okay, all right. So, uh, we we should we should be getting a, a healthy snowstorm in the next couple of days. That's right. That's how it works. Guy lived in
1: Toronto, not Colorado, but still pretty pretty Absolutely. bad with the winters. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we like to start off our interviews by uh, asking the authors to just give a little background to themselves. Uh, particularly in relation to the subject of this book. So can you please do so
0: for us? Yes. So I I could call myself an anthropologist sometimes it's easier to do that but I'm my PhD is in ethnomusicology. Okay. And so officially I'm a scholar of the relationship between music and culture, music and society. Uh, in my case the bulk of my research has focused on music and the radical right to the extent I'm an ethnomusicologist. Um, mm. I also study traditional music of Scandinavia, but my first book was about the ways that music was transforming nationalist activism in Scandinavia. Okay. And um,
1: having- gotten, What like, years were you concentrating on? The 80s?
0: Then in this case, some historical work there, but really my moment my moment of exposure was 2010 to okay. 2013, which was a, right. definitely a, a major watershed year for Sweden in particular. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've, in part, because calling yourself a music scholar gets you a lot of access to people. It's, it's very right. it's a, a non threatening academic discipline it's you know for some people it's kind of a pitiful academic discipline um (laughs) and because that that grants you a lot of access i ended up meeting people gaining insights to topics that that didn't always have a lot to do with music so as time has gone on i've i've considered myself less exclusively an ethnomusicologist and and also a a scholar you could just say a plain anthropologist of, of political life and political culture
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, the, the ethnography, uh, angle, I think is important, uh, for us to discuss a little, uh, cause I, I've seen you, well, in your introduction, you know, you talk about, um, how rare it is for anthropologists to study up. Uh, I think that's an important issue to, to talk about as well as I, I see you have, um, You've written a piece, I can't remember what journal it is about if, if I'm right, the phrase was an immoral ethnography. Uh, I, both of those issues I am very, very
0: interested in and uh, so I'd lo- love to hear what you have to say about it. Sure, sure and I would I would, I would caution listeners that the article you're referring to was written for specialists. Audiences, the the terminology is meant to provoke in very, very particular ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So ethnography to me is, is a, is a methodology. It's based on forming relationships with the people who you are studying. And that is to say, it's not uh, a research methodology of surveillance or necessarily infiltration, covert infiltration or anything like that. It's about open and honest interaction dialogue discourse over long periods of time um, that's that's an understanding of ethnography that's emerged gradually but it, it has been uh valued uh, after ha- after a lot of criticism of old methods of surveilling and, and cataloging the lives of others and and in, in my mind that basic feature the the relationship that you form with the people you study that's what distinguishes it from other research methodologies it doesn't necessarily make it Better in any grand sense than than another research methodology, but those are the insights that ethnographers can offer that others cannot.
1: Yeah. I, as a as a um, former uh, lecturer in anthropology myself, and 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 someone who has a degree, the term we used was mm-hmm. participant participant observation. Um, yes. is, is is that no longer in vogue
0: now? Have have I missed something? Oh, I th- or- it's in vogue. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's just some natural. It, I think I think that. To the extent it would not be in vogue it is just because of its antiquity (laughs) right yeah Um, yeah, you don't hear a lot of people saying that there's 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 something wrong with that but but instead of just mere participant observation there there are those who say that you know we really need to collaborate with the people who we're studying and that can mean collaboration in the strictly political sense Mm -hmm. That we would think of it can can also be less less formal collaboration to say that we need to work together to try and understand their lives, for example. Yeah. So, anyways, that that's uh, that that to me is the signature. That's where uh, ethnography, which is not the same thing as anthropology, that's where the ethnographic method is today. Mm -hmm. And and I have I have insisted that when I do the work that I do, when I study the people who I study, that I want to do ethnography as it is valued. Um, The archetypical relationship, I think, which makes an ethnography of relationships appealing to to professors and scholars, especially those who want to use their research for political ends explicitly, is, is that the archetypical relationship for an ethnographer and the people who they're they're studying has has been a wealthy western ethnographer studying the oppressed um that is to say people with whom political solidarity and sometimes personal solidarity is kind of uncomplicated and not Mm -hmm. non-taxing when i come along and And I say, you know, I'm not just going to conduct like a journalistic interview with the people I study, I'm not going to just lurk around them and surveil them. But I'm going to do what other ethnographers do today, which is to form functioning relationships with them over time, that are based on honesty, that that breaks with a lot of the implicit trends in ethnography, and also leaves us in a place where we really can't say that ethnography is going to be a tool for good, which is what a lot of scholars have thought. They've thought that, oh, if we're forming relationships with the people we study, there's a natural, a natural positive and righteous valence to our activities. And so when I say that we need to be prepared to embrace ethnography as as also a potentially immoral Mm -hmm. practice, this is what I'm referring to. I'm saying essentially that it is as moral as the people involved. and And if you limit ethnography in its best forms only to people who will who can be objects of political admiration for you then we're we're deliberately denying ourselves insight into a large portion of humanity making ourselves deliberately ignorant deliberately making ourselves ignorant
1: yeah yeah those are um, important points and i i also want to put out um A perspective from my angle too i i i I, um, my studies were in um, development studies in the third world and i i I had combined it with anthropology and you know um so there's there's always these questions i mean i i want to challenge you a bit in saying that it it was unproblematic the way it happened in the past because there were real power dynamics there and it was powerful west it was it was privileged western people going to study tribes people first Mm -hmm. you know in in a jungle or 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 a forest usually hunters and gatherers that was the 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 kind of fetishized um subject of the Mm anthropologist at first and then you know then later on getting to urban people in third world settings um and and there there was this there was always this power dynamic and um, i I myself, I remember coming to Trinidad and being a Trinidadian. So, so this is another thing, Mm -hmm. studying one's own culture or one's own ancestral culture, because I had, I I was actually born abroad and and lived abroad. And so when I came down to do my field work, I was, you know, I was kind of, you know, half of a foreigner, half of an insider. Uh And, um, and when I told people I was an anthropologist, th- they totally uh, closed up. You know, like, so what am I? Am I, am I a, a savage? Or are, are you looking at me? you know the, the, uh-huh. the whole the, the the whole reaction was different. If I said I was a sociologist, on the other hand, that was fine, right? Interesting. Um, you know, uh, everybody was fine with that, and and they'd be open and and speak and whatever. But if it said uh, I'm an anthropologist, then it's uh, so so those yes. power dynamics are very 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 uh, much there. So uh, and uh, and uh, a very early, uh, crit- these are some you know very early critiques. And then Clifford uh, J- James Clifford's con- uh, collection and writing ethnography was a big thing in the late eighties and nineties. But yes. studying up has also been a problem too, because anthropologists, you have easy access to tribes people that they could just, you know, kind of go in or, or just to go into a favela somewhere and, and speak yeah. to, you know, whoever, but, um, but studying, uh, you know, a multinational corporation boardroom or the elite or the rich uh, is, is another thing. So there was this, yeah. there was this bias in, um, in anthropology, at, at you know, in, in its even ideal phase, a, a very real problem. And, and I do think, you know, your work is very interesting in that respect because you are studying up in that sense, you're not studying down, um, you're, you're studying the, the, the powerful. How, um, so, do you have any reflections on that? Like, for instance,
0: even in terms of methodology, uh, that might be interesting. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. And I mean, first, I'd, I'd, I'd love to comment the one thing that I wrote in that in that article was that, yes, we could talk about a change in anthropology whereby there's more, you know, there are more uh, people outside, you know, non-Westerners studying, you know, participating in the field. There are more women studying. Uh, and I think that old relationship, that old ideal of the Western, you know, Savior, wealthy Western Savior from the museum going to study the savages, you know, of course, we could go on and on about all of the foolishness in that and also how it you use the word fetishized, and that's true Mm -hmm. how it how it also involved a fetishizing of the people. That who were being studied, and that that also extends to moral assessments. Um, One thing I write in my in my article is that there's there's probably no one on earth who's moral enough for ethnography to be inherently moral. (laughs) In in practice, we're human beings, for goodness' sake. Yeah. So, but when we, in my case, when you know the diversions that I have taken have not only been on the moral plane, studying people who. I'm not going to gain any social capital with my ethnographer colleagues for forming relationships with and, mm-hmm. and being collaborative in any sense with, but more, more specifically in the most recent book that I wrote, uh, yes, I'm studying elites who are extremely difficult to access and have no reason, no incentive to entertain my, my requests for their time. Yeah. Yeah. And that it's it's very it's very difficult because it becomes it becomes more transactional mm-hmm. at the outset um, if they if their time is worth money uh, or if it's or if it's if it's not just worth money if it's if it's worth a lot of appreciable public political capital, mm-hmm. they view time with me as a potential investment to be evaluated um, and accepted or not based on based on the <laughs> anticipated yeah, yeah. returns to speak in, in kind of economic language Mm -hmm. here and my you know my solution to that has been politeness honesty and and a doggedness just in in the case of steve bannon for example who he's he's not as inaccessible as people think he he will speak to people if you know under the right circumstances but in that instance i just had to make myself an immovable fixture of his life (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, in form of just showing up at his, his hotels and his houses, um, and being polite, but not, not giving any indication that I was going to be leaving soon, um, made myself in a nuisance. And that, that was what started, started the access, but that's, that's much, much different as, as you note from, from studying people who are in a situation of desperation, let's say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. So, um, <clears throat> Let's, I, I guess, to get into the contents of the book, uh, what is it you are referring to in your title, War for Eternity, and, um, and why is it important?
0: Like all great titles, uh, it's not. <laughs> um, it, so it could mean a couple of things, and I intend for the reader throughout the course of the book to learn what it really, really is about the figures who I'm studying view themselves as fighting on behalf of eternity. Um, But war on behalf of eternity would not be as sexy of a title. They they view themselves as involved in a struggle between unending timeless values and social forms and progress. Uh, And the belief in progress and the belief that as time moves forward, things are going to be or have the potential to be meaningfully better than they ever were in the past. And um, the Alexander Dugan, the Russian intellectual who I, who I write about in the book, he, he's used phrases like this before I quote it uh, in the book where he says, we need to not fight for the past that has passed. In other words, he wanted to describe himself as not being a nostalgic. We need instead to fight for the eternity that is the basis of traditional society. And that uh, that was really the genesis for the for the title,
1: All right? Well, let me ask: How did you become uh, interested in the subject to to start to write the book? Um, was it uh, from uh, the idea of traditionalism itself, and the kind of, uh, uh, or, or or was it because of Bannon, or was it because of things that led you there through the kind of death metal? Uh, scene uh, the Nordic um, the, the Nordic scene what what was it that uh, a little bit of, <laughs> yeah
0: a little bit of everything you just mentioned actually mm-hmm. um, it, I knew about traditionalism and I had become more broadly interested in ideological factions and variants within the within the broader radical right, um, right. based on my research in Sweden and and on music among other things music was one of the lenses or, uh, you know, that was allowing us to see, if not ideological differentiation, then at least social and stylistic differentiation among, among uh, people on the radical right. And when I heard that Steve Bannon was interested in traditionalism, that, that blew me away for, for a very specific reason. The traditionalists that who I had known in Scandinavia and in Northern Europe, who I'd encountered in my fieldwork, some of them they could be very very smart some quite quite well read in fact but they were the furthest thing imaginable from political activists mm-hmm. um, they were they were the last this is especially at a time when nationalist parties in europe were experiencing new political opportunities that they almost never could have dreamed of i mean the, the atmosphere especially the early early 2010s was one of just wow, there's you know, cosmic forces are at play, and our message is going through, and nobody can stop us right now. Um, and traditionalists were not a part of that, they were not a part of that optimism. They were, they were weird, <laughs> Dr. Megu. Yeah, yeah I, yeah, mean, yeah, I mean, they were, they were, biz- they were withdrawn, antisocial. Obscure esoteric intellectuals.
1: Exactly. It had a lot to do with, I mean, there's a lot of intersection with the occult, with paganism, Tons. Satanism, of course. Uh, yes. Yeah.
0: Overwhelmingly male, more so than the male dominated radical right in general. Mm-hmm. Young, you know, antisocial in some cases. Like one of the
1: YouTube personalities, Sticks and Hammer, 666. Okay. He kind <laughs> um, yeah, he, he, he crosses the, jo- the genres, doesn't he?
0: Yeah, if it's if it isn't that, I'm not familiar with that particular user. But but yes, I think you get the the right. The okay.
1: Right feeling. Uh-huh. So, a lot of debates. Yeah.
0: Okay. So I mean, we have that, and all of a sudden, this that body of that collection of ideas is in the White House. I mean, and having never, you know, I read the articles. I read, you know, the New York Times wrote a little bit about Bannon's interest in Julius Evola. Um, there were some other, other takes, Josh Green's book, uh, devil's bargain made some references to Bannon's interest, but no one knows what this stuff is in the, in the mainstream academic or journalistic core. Yeah. It's not like traditionalism was taught in political science departments or anything like that. No one has, no one has That's right. a clue about, it. there's a slim chance that someone in religious studies might but but in generally in, in general that this is off the map so it was that anomaly uh, seeing Steve Bannon just aware of these these authors was enough to make me curious and i th- when i first met him i thought i was going to be you know maybe writing an article an academic article about his access to Julius Evola and it would be about kind of communication networks and channels and publishing and things like that um, but as as I continued speaking to him, and really our so, first meeting. If you oh, don't mind, yes, yes, please. Uh, so, so, did you just like write him a
1: letter out of the, out of the blue, out of thin air, um, uh, or or did you have a contact and
0: in? Or that's interesting because in yeah. I pro- I do want to, <laughs> to interview him myself. Oh yeah, well it it was it was very difficult. No, I right. I had one contact to his press, one of his press agents what would you call a publicist of sorts yeah um and i had to work that contact for a year i don't no, know right. how, many, how many emails i sent i even you know there were even some false alarm trips to the airport where they said oh yeah you want to meet us here and then i get to the airport i said no steve went to another city mm-hmm. um and then one time i i got a message again and the agent said well he's going to be in manhattan these next couple days. And I just thought, okay, I'm popping on a plane. I'm flying to Manhattan. Right. And if he turns off, if he, you know, if he's not there, then okay, (laughs) I'll hop on a plane (laughs) and come back home. right? But, uh, when I got there, I started texting. I said, all right, I'm here. And they said, okay, well his, you know, his hotel is, you know, his loft is here. And you know, the next text they got from me, I said, all right, I'm at the loft. I'll be here all day today and all day tomorrow. (laughs) and and that's that's how it happened and and it certainly didn't you know i made sure when you get access to someone i knew this from earlier in my my research that if you get access you of course like like a journalist would do you do all of your homework you do everything you possibly can to make the most of that time and the the good part of that is not just that you're efficient with your questions but if they're receptive to you they also you also make an impression of being serious so yeah I, i hope that i did that
1: Right right so so i mean so that's like so that was a determined pursuit on your, your behalf so yeah. so you really wanted to speak to him about about uh, traditionalism is that correct
0: yeah it it was it was at a time also in my kind of academic writing you know we we have we have our our various projects that we work on and i was i had kind of wrapped up my last work and was very very much kind of desperate for a new direction to go in and i i didn't actually think that steve bannon was going to be it but but i it was a time when i was being kind of reckless with pursuit of topics you could say and i'm glad i'm glad that that was the case because i probably would have given up otherwise
1: right right you know the how you describe um your sort of amazement with steve bannon in the white house and how these ideas found it it's very much a parallel i think uh and for me with George Bush and, uh, the neocons and Leo Strauss, um, yes. you know, I, I just said George Bush was such an idiot. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, she just, you know, sounded so stupid, but, and then I just discovered, and then the neocons, they just seemed like stupid warmongers, right wing, whatever. Yeah. And then I discovered the whole sort of Leo Straussian, uh, extremely sophisticated, and and which does have a lot of overlap with traditionalism, although yes. he's not a traditionalist. No. But, no, but lots good, yes. and lots of overlap. That's that's fascinating. The way these things come up, uh, come up in the Republican side. Uh, very very interesting discourses. But you know, we've been talking about traditionalism, and uh, uh, but we haven't explained it yet. Uh, Can you explain to our listeners what traditionalism is? Because many people think it's just uh, liking tradition,
0: but it's not that at all. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. Um, I wish it had a different name. I wish it had a very strange sounding name that nobody would ever mistake for something that that they knew. Traditionalism is was initially a, a philosophical and a spiritual a religious school. It didn't have a lot to do with politics and for a lot of traditionalists today, it still doesn't have a lot to do with politics. Um, but it is based on the belief that as time moves forward for almost all, but one exceptional moment in human history that recurs, that as time moves forward, our condition degrades. And, and it degrades in a number of ways and the details of how they see time as equating with degra- degradation is, is important. But one right off the bat is that they think as, that as time moves forward, we are typically moving further and further away from spiritual truth. Mm-hmm. Now, they believe that in the past, there was an actual Ur religion, the Tradition, capital T, that, that was truthful, authentic, and accurate um and that as time moved forward what happened to that tradition was that its truths became lost they became lost you know this is part of ev- the evidence for this is that writing comes into existence mm-hmm. uh, we we don't have living active oral memory and, and preservation of spiritual truths so we have to start writing them down because we're forgetting them mm-hmm. um, they also they also believe that uh fragmentation took place that's that true one core religions split up in a number of directions and that it, its insights were preserved in a sort of piecemeal fashion in a select number of traditions religious practices around the world and if you want them to be specific about those practices most often you will hear hinduism um, you will hear sufism mentioned from uh, mm-hmm. from islam maybe kabbalah maybe esoteric christianity Um, but the value of all of the latter, uh, examples, esoteric Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and so on, is that they preserved something that was considered to be older than the host religion itself. And, uh, in other words that let's say Sufism actually has incubated spiritual teachings that are older than Islam, um, because antiquity age is a sign that something is better according to this worldview. It's a sign that uh, you, you have a time capsule from a, a better human condition, an earlier age when things had not degraded so much. Hinduism uh, is, is evoked, especially because it, it, in so many aspects, has preserved uh, itself and has preserved a sort of pre-monotheistic indo-european paganism in ways that other other traditions had not or had to be revived in a certain way mm-hmm. so all of all of those uh, all of those religious teachings are are viewed as as certainly containing the sacred for the traditionalist, and a lot of traditionalists believe that you needed to de- pick one of them and devote your entire life to it for the chance of gaining the meager reward of its its few fragmented insights but the bigger picture is that they are all true in some way. Um, yeah. so there's a there's a simultaneous universalism to this account and a particularism, a belief that you need to be specific to one tradition, but but we can also observe that there is a unifying insight across cultures, societies and places.
1: You know, I mean uh, for a lot of people uh, I think they would just be uh, Totally confused and shocked as to how this has anything to do with Steve Bannon, who just seems like a white mm-hmm. racist nationalist, uh, you know, kind of like people would say, "How how the hell does Leo Strauss have anything to do with George yes. Bush?" <laughs> 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 I mean, uh, it's it's uh, I, I think for a lot of people they they just uh, have no idea, and I I think that the linchpin comes in with the nationalism there, and and what about the heard about the uh, the Counter enlightenment, and uh, I mean, um, and I I think that the the, there are a lot of uh, interesting angles that that we could take it from, Uh, and I'll just lay out some of them for you to comment on. But like uh, with Leo Strauss, you have this the the very 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 important distinction between ancient and modern, and uh, and that the um, and that the Straussians prefer the ancient to the modern. Right, I, I, I the, the first time, you know, I, I, am very sympathetic to to that view, uh, but it, it mm-hmm. took me a, a while to, to come around to it. I, I remember being in the UK, for example, when I was doing my PhD in the late nineties, and, um, and. You know, being in the European context is totally different, and like you know, reading the TV guide, for example, and they tell you what movies coming on television, and if the tele, and and if it's like a remake of like a nineteen forties show, right? So even though the the nineteen nineties remake, you know, has has um, more, you know, uh, realistic acting, uh, better cinematography, better special effects, all this stuff they they prefer the 1940s version right? they they thought it was better and it's like it's like I, I had to wrap my head around all, all this kind of stuff, like, like people that preferred houses uh, not with um, modern plumbing and stuff like that, <laughs> where I stayed as a student. And, and, it's like, and it, it took, and, uh, but I, I did come around to it, right? But, <laughs> but, it, uh, but it took me a while. It really took me a while. So th- that is one thing. The other thing I think is the whole debate of postmodernism, I too had to. I I grappled with, uh, you know, I I was so attracted to postmodernism in the 80s and Mm -hmm. 90s. And and I grappled with with a lot of it because I eventually agreed with Camille Paglia that postmodernism. Was really uh, fraudulent and flippant, right? It, it raised great questions, but but they were they were not serious. <laughs> Foucault and Derrida they they started and then they they dropped off, and and their critique of modernity. Uh, if I may use the word, was kind of half-assed, uh, yes. and it's really yes. when you when you went to the traditionalist, that's when you really and, and when you started to read Nietzsche himself, you realize that they didn't read Nietzsche properly, right? And and so some of the things you even yep. talk about, like the emergence of writing, that's like a Nietzschean thing about the pre-Socratic philosophers were were superior to the you know uh, yes Plato and and afterward, and then I'm a Hindu as well, but I was raised a christian and i converted sort of back to hinduism uh and and that whole um you know so 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 the whole hindu aspect and and i'm i'm getting very much more and more involved in in indian uh politics and life through through other activities and, and so that's a whole other very interesting angle then you have people like uh alistair mcintyre who i love uh that's kind of like a straussian thing about the ancient and modern and 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 the very very clear break his after his book after virtue a classic in philosophy is is just one of my favorites and then um and tied to all of this in the background is stuff like the occult like alistair crowley right and which which takes you like into the music the music part uh you know, from whether it be thrash or or you go to heavy metal, or even things like you know psychedelic rock and and all the stuff in the sixties, uh, you know the magic and occult, all, all these things um, uh, point point to this and and it um, yes. and when when you take these angles to, I, hopefully, I think people can understand the connection. To the politics more so i i'd like you to to um elaborate on some of these and and to try to get listeners who may be confused as to
0: how does this relate to steve bannon you know well i mean you, you gave a perfect introduction right there that the there's already the germ of the idea in what we've what we've been talking about and it is as simple as it is encompassing mm-hmm. if encompassing is the right word here but that that basic belief, I often ask my students in, the, in, in classes, you know, hey, students, do you think things are getting better? You know, and yeah, they, give yeah. me the, they give me the blank stare and they say, well, what do you mean? I said, you know, things in general, are things getting better? And all of them eventually tend to say, yeah, yeah, more or less. Do you think that you are living a better life than your great grandparents? Yeah, there, there might be one, you know, one holdout in the corner of the room. hmm you know, yeah. sociologically aligned with traditionalism, but in, in ge- with yeah. the traditionalists. But, but in general, in general, we we adopt that that stance. We are moderns. We are progressives. Mm-hmm. That belief that things we through our energy and our ingenuity that we can make a better society for ourselves than what has ever existed. Mm. That is a sort of underlying political position that does not appear to us as a political position because it is so commonsensical. It trans, right. it has a left wing, a right wing variant, a liberal, a conservative variant. But uh, for traditionalists, they take the absolute opposite perspective, which is that things can never be better than, than they actually were in the past. Yeah And everything that you think is progress uh, is wrong. They even have a, a, a concept called inversion. Yeah. Um, which, which is, which has more kind of come to life in commentary on traditionalism, I have to say, but I, I, I certainly use it in the book, but the belief that, especially in the modern era where we're living today, basically any official status or any official institution that we see is probably underneath the surface, uh, uh perpetuating the opposite of its, of its stated mission. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I'm a professor I'm probably teaching ignorance rather than truth and insight. Yeah. Doctors are probably harming rather than uh, assisting the, in in strengthening the health of their patients.
1: Kind of like an esoteric exoteric thing. Exactly, sense. but
0: ex- yeah. except it, you know driving on the point that the two are are necessarily pure opposites. Yeah. So so if you're looking to what we've just talked about today and what that could possibly have to do with Donald Trump and Steve Bannon, this is, this is where we see it. Of course, the details matter. What, what is it that was so great about the past? What is it that is getting worse? How should things be? How are things? Why are they bad? All those details matter. And for traditionalists, the details shift a bit as well. The, more, the most notable, the most notorious traditionalist on the right is Julius Avila. Um, You know, in whose tradition, in whose lineage, really, we see a lot of of right-wing political activism. Um, And for him, part of what was great about the past was not just its spirituality, but its racial uh, separatism, um, a a sort of caste hierarchy that that is going to be most familiar familiar to most listeners who have some familiarity with Hinduism. Um, a belief that the global North was was a seat of enlightenment over the global South, uh, a belief that masculinism was was to be uh, preferred over feminism. All of the all of all of that detail and all of that content makes it especially easy to align with, with the reactionary radical right. But we we shouldn't miss that basic principle that we already know, having not, not even talked any more about traditionalism, having just talked about its understanding of time and of eschatology. We know that this is not a progressive left-wing political uh, accessory by mm-hmm. any stretch of the imagination.
1: now there are a couple of things I, I I want to uh, go off in that but let, let's let's take the the simpler one first uh, uh, that this is not a left-wing um, uh, point of view or worldview however however there is a lot of overlap you know for example uh, and, and I'd like you to, to comment a little bit about this more about a, something you wrote in the conclusion in, in the final chapter um, where you're kind of summarizing the beliefs and the political programs of of the uh, traditionalists. And you talk about uh, no empires, no domineering transnational entities plotting beyond the view and the control of average people. Instead, a world of nations or civilizations, of bounded enclaves, and that's what's important, each based on something that ought to align with its robust borders, its people. Um. So first of all, I, I I want to note that a lot of left wing ideology, uh, left wing thought, will uh, um, find uh, you know resonance with this in, in terms of economic nationalism and against globalism, against imperialism, against interventionism, against endless wars and and all these things. Uh, so and. While I note that, I also want to ask okay. you what's wrong with that vision. It's something that I think, for example, is, is, is not only legitimate but desirable. So mm-hmm. I, I'd like to hear your, um, your your critique of that vision.
0: Sh- sure, there's a, there's a lot to say there, I've, I, and I and I want to be careful not to mix the two questions together. Mm-hmm. Um, I broadly identify with the left, even though I'm somewhat heretical. <laughs> (laughs) and not always accepted as a leftist i don't really care (laughs) um but i don't like and i don't want to reinforce the notion that that what is left is good right (laughs) because i've met too many leftists to know know better (laughs) so i um uh okay so your question is is you know the distinction with the left it has to do with motivation of course Mm -hmm. i don't think if, if you look at the contemporary left, yes, it may be anti-imperialist in some senses, um, in the military and economic sense. Um, it's, it's broader, you know, the the old and the new left, the old left being, you know, sort of social democrat slash communist slash socialist mm-hmm. cause is going to be way too materialistic. takes a disinterest, I think, in spiritual matters. Right to the extent that it would put it at odds with traditionalism, um, it's the opiate and, of the masses. <laughs> it is the opiate of the masses, and and it is a false consciousness. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, you know, to be meddling and and there's there's a powerful I think left left wing critique to make of traditionalism and of Steve Bannon mm-hmm. that all of this talk of spirituality is really the dressings for for confusing the discussion about economic politics. Mm-hmm. So there's that, and then the new left. Uh, with its with its emphasis on emancipatory social campaigns well emancipation genuine emancipation is, is a nonsensical concept a non-starter for traditionalists because it is premised on the idea that you will escape a past of enslavement into a future of freedom all right and typically even though even though the new left doesn't always say this but typically a lot of it's the the end game for for these initiatives is individualism. Yeah, you know, this was one of I think when Jordan Peterson was was being put on the spot in some debates. It was over this topic that that feminism, GLBT rights, anti racism. It in the end, it has a hyper individualism as its as its as its ideal. So so all of that is this, to say, I mean the 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 kind of bird's eye view. Uh, analysis you made, Dr. Mego is is certainly certainly correct. There, the, you know, I think that there could be a sort of alliance built in anti imperialism between the figures that we study and and the traditionalists, but but we would have to pay attention to all of those details that that would immediately be be resting under the surface. And the question about what what is what is bad about about that, I'm I'm somewhat agnostic. You know, I don't say a lot about what I think. Uh, right, yeah. parking, mainly because I, I, I don't I, I'm not sure that what I have to say is is, is that that interesting. I, I am troubled by globalism and internationalism to the extent that it also entails a loss of sovereignty for people that we suddenly find ourselves beholden to to nebulous international entities that are also uh, completely free from democratic, um, accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the one thing we still theoretically have a, con- have control over at least is our national government. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly that form of nationalism I like and have, and do not see being supplanted by, by anything else. The phrase managerial liberalism is one that in some instances can, can resonate with me, not in others. Uh, the, the problem is, is that a heavy handed all or nothing approach to this also risks destroying, A lot of good things that come from international cooperation um i mean you could look at look at this moment we're living in right now for 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 proof of that certainly interconnectedness and cosmopolitanism is is one of the features making the coronavirus uh, a threat and and allowing it to have have moved as quickly um and as unstoppably throughout the world on the other hand the the medical response to it is is a product of interconnectedness and internationalism um yeah, you know. So, what, where where do we turn in all this? These I, I see it as an ingredient, uh, nationalism and boundedness that I don't want extinguished, but I wouldn't want it to to overrun uh, the world either. There's another aspect I I want to bring up, and um,
1: and and it goes into different directions, but uh, let, let me try to to stick it in in w- one particular direction that I want to talk first about, mm-hmm. which is um, when, when you talk about the caste hierarchy and you, you talk about the slaves, I, I have an objection there that I'd, I'd like, and, and a comment that I'd like you to, to address, mm-hmm. um, which is a, um, the misunderstanding of the, uh, well, first of all, the demonization of the caste system is, is one thing. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and then the misunderstanding of the shudras as slaves uh, because the sh- which is the the fourth caste mm-hmm. um, because in in fact uh indian civilization and hindu civilization is c- perhaps unique in that there was actually no slavery there was no buying and selling of human beings no market in human beings ever existed uh, all but yes there was a social order as as with with every other society but but the the the, the larger point um outside of that particular debate um is that and 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 just to, to uh one final thing there's this Great person I recommend, uh, Rajiv Malhotra, who has been addressing um, these Western misunderstandings of Hinduism. And he just launched a book about uh, what you call Sanskrit untranslatables. Things like caste or idols or gods, Mm -hmm. which when translated into English, carry this enormous negative baggage. Mm-hmm. Uh, which automatically prejudices one, uh, and uh, because it doesn't understand the metaphysics behind um, the, behind the concepts of varna or devas, or we, we, which are the the Sanskrit terms for for these words that have been anglicized, and therefore. Um, laden with all this Abrahamic baggage, um, on, on the very words itself, which, which almost, which just sort of tilts the, the, the interpretive playing field, uh, you know, irrevocably for, for many people. Uh, but, but, uh, I, I want to, uh, step a little, uh, wider than that to, to say that as someone myself who, you know, I, I've, I've interviewed and have, uh, have, relationships in a certain sense with, you know, Dugan, uh, Georgiani, uh Mark Sedgwick and, and other people, uh, like E. Michael Jones, Sheikh Imran Hussein, mm-hmm. uh, Christopher McIntosh. Um, and, and you know, and, and I, I speak to all sorts of people, I, you know, people like in the Nation of Islam and black nationalists and, and, and mm-hmm. liberals. And, you know, I mean, I mean, I was basically socialized into the whole liberal global, institutional, multilateral kind of thing. And, you know, so I'm, I'm highly <laughs> versed in, in all of that. And, and um, you know, uh, all these circles. And I will tell you that um, I I am much more comfortable in many ways speaking to white nationalists, so-called white nationalists, than I am to liberals. I find <laughs> liberals are, in fact, more um, orientalist um, oh. More um, ethnocentric, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and and have this this inherent east west division in in their mentality, and therefore supremacist, because undoubtedly Western rational enlightenment society is far better than than Hindu. Than than a Hindu nationalist state, of course it is, right? Um, (laughs) In a way that that you know these so-called white nationalists um, do not, uh, you know, they they don't even accept that premise, and 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 they, uh, you know, and and they don't see this division between east and west that uh, that liberals do as well, and Mm -hmm. and I think you know, and then the the left and the liberals go around calling these people racist, and and. I will tell you in my own interaction, they, they are far less orientalist, less uh, divisive, and, and less supremacist than, than liberals. <laughs> well, I'd like you to comment on that.
0: Oh, sure, sure. I mean, for, first, uh, your, your, your points about the translation of terms, you know, gods, warriors, slaves, and whatnot, are, are certainly well taken. Um, and I don't want to just wash my hands of the of the issue and say that that it's the terminology used by by the people I'm studying. So take it up with mm. them, of course. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think what mattered for for my study was not so much whether or not the Shudra were proper slaves in the Western understanding of the term, but but that their their metaphysics was one of materiality opposite right opposite a priestly caste mean mm-hmm. uh, so and that is
1: that is definitely there yeah
0: yeah so to to the second point it's inter- i'm going to take this in a slightly different direction it's, it's more personal and less um, less ideological than what what you were saying but there can be part of me that feels more comfortable speaking to and spending time with the people who I study <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> than with my my liberal colleagues and friends. Yeah, and, yeah, <laughs> and and I said it. It's more personal. It's it's that they will never hold me to a purity test. Right. Um, that's It's like right. after they know after the fact, if they know a little bit about me, I'm, I'm a pretty boring American Democrat. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry yeah. to say, I kind of supported Elizabeth Warren. That's that's <laughs> where I am. I'm really I'm really pretty mainstream. But when they when they know that, if they accept that we're we're different. Then, if there's ever any tiny place where we agree with one another, it's great. Yeah. And every and every place where we don't agree with each other, so what? You know, yeah, we, we exactly. assume that. Whereas, if I'm speaking um, to someone closer to me politically, it's there's always this assessment, especially based on the work that I do and the people who who I study and the fact that I don't devote myself to just trashing them um, completely, mainly because I don't think that's interesting or, or educational. Mm-hmm. there's always this, you know, well, what do you think of this? Oh, yeah, do you have the right opinion on this? Do you agree with me on this? And, and so that, that oxygen that you get by going to the margins of the political spectrum is something that i've certainly felt and and appreciated just just for myself just a place to to breathe um,
1: and, and, and don't you think this vindicates dugan's observation about liberalism being inherently imperialistic
0: <laughs> <laughs> well it i mean there's there's truth to those those things that that he says in, in the sense that it, it can't really coexist with with a, non, a non-liberalism and mm-hmm. In response to him, I would I would say you know at the level of, of state formation, um, you know of making a, a national bureaucracy, uh, administrative apparatus. I yeah, <laughs> it, 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 I think there there are reasons why it can't why it can't tolerate an, yeah. a, an explicit, mm-hmm. actual, real anti liberalism. But in the realm of intellectual discourse, and also just in social behavior, which matters more to me, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there, mm-hmm. there, the the dogmatism of it becomes becomes very troubling, right? Uh, right. Un- unattractive is maybe the better word, right? Well, th- that's an uh, that's an important point you make about this
1: the social relationships being more important, and 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 I think that that's also a type of orientation that that aligns itself to to, to this view as well, because um in the end the ideology is 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 often um you know kind of. Uh, just an, an exoteric expression of, uh, mm-hmm. of tendencies, you know that that uh, you know that is that is an imperfect reflection of it, and that it's really shown in social relationships. And this yes. gets us to your book itself, yes. because your book, as you say isn't it's it's not really like an academic uh you know there's not a lot of academic commentary it is very journalistic Uh, Mm -hmm. a a lot of it and and i don't mean that in a in a bad way at all journalism is is great novels are great you know descriptions of people events uh in in a in a in a dense deep thoughtful way is great i those things are excellent and and i'm not i I don't disparage it at all at all at all but uh but but yeah but you you are not like you know refer, referencing um you know all all these thinkers in an academic way which I, although you do have that but you focus on the social relationships and it's very interesting there's yeah. a story there um, so you it, it yeah it, it's it's not we've been talking theoretically in a sense but that your book is yeah. not that it is really about your relationship with people like Steve Bannon Reza Joe, Johnny, not so much Richard Spencer although he comes in but Dugan you have this jellyfish you have the John Morgan so you have this cast of characters and and um yeah so uh, g- can you uh, explain a little bit m- more about that maybe tell us a little bit about some of these characters some of the interesting interactions and surprising um you know, antagonisms and, and, and stuff that, that are there. They, this makes everything very human and interesting. Uh, and that's a, a very important part of your book.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, by the time I got to the end of my period of research, really Steve, Steve Bannon was one of the most normal characters <laughs> <laughs> that, that I came across by a by a long shot. Mm-hmm. So, again, something about the margins attracts, attracts very colorful, colorful people. Yeah. But I was following multiple multiple stories broke out while I was while I was studying this book one was that basically before my eyes Steve Bannon was trying to network with uh, his equivalency let's say in in other countries um, it's, He's not a perfect equivalency but yeah you have Dugan in Russia and then you have this figure Olavo de Carvalho in in Brazil mm-hmm. um, you know Dugan who is a a public intellectual in complicated and kind of unquantifiable ways, he he's influential in Russia, although it's, it's very, as I wrote in the book, it's very easy to overstate or understate his, yeah. his influence. It's hard to know exactly where, but but he's something. Yeah. So much we know. Um, Olavo de Cavalho is, is a major influence. No one denies that he's a major influence on Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. Mm. He's most properly called his guru, and some people credit him as for having... Created Bolsonaro's victory, mm-hmm. and then of course we have uh, we have Bannon. By the way, uh, Olavo does not does not have any official position in in right. Bolsonaro's cabinet, which makes the whole thing more more noteworthy. Actually, yeah, more more of a real guru relationship. <laughs> more of a, more of a real, more of a proper rasp- traditional. Group. Yeah, like a traditionalist. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And so we have them. We have Bannon attempting to coordinate. Dugan and Olavo have had exchanges, but they don't agree. That story is going on. It's very dramatic for me. That, that is what is what really caught my attention and made me want to write the book that I did is, is right. just be, because that was playing out right, right before me. Um, and Meanwhile, as that's going on, I start to learn about this subterranean effort to lobby Steve Bannon when he was in the White House based on his status as a traditionalist. And it was coming from the traditionalist world, the more standard world that I knew of. Um, And that's where Jason Giorgiani comes in and also exits the story. But we have a very confusing world, uh, you know, and, and the story, one person compared it to a Coen brothers film (laughs) because, because they don't succeed and and they cause themselves a lot of harm in the process. But there's a network of figures, lobbyists, activists, common criminals who were doing all of these things to try and catch steve bannon's attention to lobby him on the basis of traditionalism hoping that he would in turn lobby trump for a change in policy toward iran yeah so that's a very complicated story and and Mm -hmm. i and i I won't be able to do it do it justice here but Um, following that, following that story, which involves,
1: I, if, if I may interject something, uh, just, uh, for listeners who, who might not understand, but Iran is, uh, the, the name Iran means land of the Aryans. So there's a little connection there. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> yes. yeah,
1: and that, that's definitely part of it, but yeah, go on with, uh, uh, with the next character.
0: <laughs> well, I, I, you know, so I was following, I followed on the story, basically how a major translator of traditionalist right-wing traditionalist works arctos publishers yes. whose whose figures i've come to know over the years how they transformed how they came into being and how they eventually started producing literature that that certainly is saturating and circulating the ideas of all the rest of the figures in the story but then eventually they become part of an instrument uh to to lobby Steve Bannon. And this involves Arctos's fusion with Richard Spencer to make Mm -hmm. the short-lived Alt-Right Corporation. Right. Um, which was designed on the initiative of Jason Giorgiani, on the initiative of the this murky network Mm -hmm. to lobby Steve Bannon. Right. Okay. Um, And to get to him to make a lot of public noise, to hold events. It all comes. It all comes crashing down. You know, Johnny loses his job. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the alt right movement is is tarnished, not necessarily because of this, but it didn't help. And then, and then, one figure, one of one of the agents in that dark network, Michael Bagley, ends up being picked up by the by the FBI. <clears throat> while I'm doing my work, so. Mm-hmm trying to launder money for Mexican drug cartels to build a border wall it, it's 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 complicated it's crazy but it's very right. entertaining yeah. i just couldn't believe it as i was following it all yeah too. yeah yeah yeah
1: and um so so you you have all these these characters here uh uh trying to 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 um you know, to, to lobby, to the, they have their projects. So some are overlapping, some are contradictory, like the Iran question, yes. for example. Um, and, and also during that time, another event uh, that happened that has become iconic, I suppose, in or, or anti-iconic, in, you know, uh, was the Charlottesville um, yes. rally, Unite the Right. And so, so you, you have a chapter on, on that as well, that, uh, how, do, how does that fit into to all of this?
0: It, <clears throat> it fits in in that initially, Jason Giorgiani and some others were hoping that the term alt-right as opposed to, let's say, white nationalist or neo-Nazi, that part of its political power, I think Steve Bannon felt this way too. He used the term early on in his career before before stopping to use it. Their hope was that alt-right would be a kind of a new start for a, a properly anti-liberal, anti-modernist critique of rightism in the country and, and that it would gain a new hearing for itself based on not just the change in label, but that you would have a more intellectual cause. It wouldn't be populated by common white nationalists and thugs and neo-Nazis and things like that. and That it would be proper. Um, you know, a proper, they would have, it would be a think tank of sorts. Mm-hmm. And um, that was important for someone like Jason Drogiani, who didn't associate really with white nationalism, even though his, his political views are, are certainly beyond the pale of the mainstream in the United mm-hmm. States. And in Charlottesville, that whole project came to a dramatic, fiery halt Right where where what was labeled as an alt right event in the eyes of most of the country just descended into a very typical stereotypical display of violence and death and chaos and you know explicit chauvinism and hatred and things like that. So that I mean it killed the alt right corporation. It arguably killed the fr- the label alt right as a yeah. meaningful alternative. <laughs> Mm-hmm. and and everybody kind of went fleeing in their separate directions it also killed Steve Bannon
1: yeah yeah um, I, that, that
0: was a, a, a big turning point mm-hmm. yeah. yes this is when you know his his accommodations and his advice to Trump that Trump be more more apologetic in his and more equivocating, more equivocal in his in his references to to the whole conflict in Charlottesville, that made him an easy target when when critics were calling for Trump to do something and to change. That solution was to get get the wacko out of the White House, and that wacko was Steve Bannon.
1: Right, right, exactly. Now you know, I, I wanted uh, you said something in passing there that I'd just like to expand on a, a little bit. Which is about Reza Giorgiani, um Jason Reza Giorgiani, mm-hmm. who, who's a, a, a Persian um, uh, sort of Renaissance um, person thinker, uh, he's a very very intelligent uh, guy, yes. and one I I, I I like him. I, I don't agree with everything, um, mm-hmm. but uh, but I like him a, a lot though. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, yeah, and and you say he's, he's very much outside of the mainstream discourse in the U.S very correct however and this is one thing i'd really like to emphasize to our american listeners and um and i suppose i think europeans might might be more understanding of this although he's very outside of mainstream discourse in the u.s he is not outside of mainstream discourse in many places in asia in in in, in iran uh even in a place like India, like like uh, Tilak right? and and the the Vedic uh, the the yes, Arctic, Arctic origins of of the Aryans in um, in uh, yeah and, and and the whole um, you know even where where the pole was and all that I mean up to just. A couple of months ago, there was a whole uh, long article in the Indian Express, a very mainstream paper yes. in India. Um, you know, written by someone from one of—I uh, think he's either from the Ministry of Defense or one of the major think tanks. But, but these are these are mainstream things outside of a sort of uh, American liberal discourse, and even within America, I was—I I was. Um, uh, I, I was uh, you, when I was getting into a lot of this stuff, like nation, the Nation of Islam, for example, and Malcolm X, mm-hmm. I'm doing a series on the New uh, Books Network on Malcolm X and Black Nationalism for that. Yes. But like a lot of of their views are so outside of sort of yes. white liberal discussion, but it is very important in uh, in Black American life and therefore American life. Like some, you cannot understand Louis Farrakhan for example, without understanding some of these very, very, very uh, outside, if, if you want to put it, uh, and I, I don't want to use the term marginal because in black America, it's not marginal. It is not marginal at all. Louis Farrakhan is a mainstream figure in black America. You know, yes. and, and, and these things, I think it, it goes back to the kind of orientalist um, liberalism you know uh-huh. and, uh, that uh, that um, it, it is very. I, I find it you know very difficult uh, to speak to liberals about these things because they are they are so judgmental as as you say and and they they so stringently narrow their frame of, of reference um, and and it's something and I'm not saying that people have to agree with all these things but but I do think that. Um, that now and, and it's coming down to this censorship issue as well that that's happening all throughout um, social media I I I, I, it, yes. I would really like it if there weren't this censorship if we could <laughs> if we could discuss all these things even if we don't agree with it even if we think it sounds crazy it might sound crazy in this but many things that Americans, in mainstream discourse think is normal. People in Asia and India and whatever think is crazy as well. You know, we have to we and this gets to the anthropology of it all, the ethnocentrism. Yes. I, I'd like to hear your comments on
0: <laughs> Well, what you're saying is certainly making me ask myself, okay, do I call Jason Giorgiani outside of the mainstream because I somewhere in my mind perceive him as a as genuinely white American? Right. What I know, what I know about his background, notwithstanding. Yeah. Whereas Louis Farrakhan could never be part, could never be American mainstream, and does that have anything to do with who he is? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, <laughs> but <laughs> but there there could certainly be something to that. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I think those those distinctions those distinctions live. Uh, it, it could also be that that. I've encountered Jason wanting to, not, not merely, you know, embodying a certain political identity, but wanting to participate in mainstream American politics. And that, that makes me consider his, his ideas in a different light. But, I mean, aside, nonetheless, aside from what you're saying about how he would line up with people in different parts of the world, mm-hmm. uh, even within the United States, it might not be fair to call him mainstream. Right. Or, or outside of the mainstream or, or yeah. speaking those speak in, speak in those general terms so i dig it yeah yeah no there yeah. There, there could be that and, and i i i share i share i think a lot of your your sentiments here and that mm-hmm. i don't i don't think it's a good thing i don't like it socially personally intellectually but i i i, I certainly don't think it's a good thing to be preserving consensus Peddling consensus from you know the position of scholars, which which tons of people do all the time, but but also taking taking the the blunt instrument of censorship in order to in order to preserve consensus is, is a, a wretched, unappealing idea to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I in in your work too, you um I mean you you follow the, the um you know the proper ethnographic uh, um, technique of of you know using the words nationalist and dissident right instead of racist white supremacist, and you know the the pejorative terms given by others and 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 that that's a, that's a very important
0: first step towards mm-hmm. understanding isn't it yes yes it's it's something i mean i i get a lot of heat from that um, because because i do that i feel very strongly about it and it's not it's not so much that i <sighs> That I care about being neutral, mm-hmm. or you know, objective. Yeah, it's yeah. it's actually the, that the opposite tr- troubles me so much is that you know it's it's and put it down in other terms, it's not that I like using the word dissident, right, or nationalist, um, because there are cases where I think that isn't a euphemism. But it's it's more that if I use the word white nationalist, fascist, neo-Nazi, that does it does it's at best meaningless for the reader. That's right. There's no one who's going to feel instructed or educated by those terms, but more likely, uh, it is going to inspire dullardry, yes, and and a hostility to curiosity. It's going to turn mm-hmm. off our, our educating and our learning fac- uh, faculties. And one thing that I, you know, for example, one of one of the one of the more damning reviews that my my last book got was in the Guardian. And it was uh, this, this journalist, Luke Harding, who, you know, who faulted me. He said, you know, clearly uh, these ideas are extremely dangerous and the author never says that. Right. At which point I start wondering to myself, okay, well, where did you learn about these ideas? Mm-hmm. You learned about them in my book. I know for a fact he didn't know about, about all this, this story ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and how did you determine that they were so dangerous? from reading my book from reading my words and in other words he didn't need my yes. editorializing to draw the conclusions that he did mm-hmm. so what is the purpose of the editorializing then why does he want me to label and force feed everything it can't be because it actually matters to the intellectual project right it is it is either a cynical assessment of of his perspective in that case, thinking that he has powers of perception that other people don't have. And if, and if I don't, if I don't do that editorializing and label things in incendiary ways, then the fools, the rest of us fools will be duped by my writing. Yeah. I don't think he has powers of perception other people don't have. Mm. Um, or, or this is just a game of tribalism. And we're just wanting to make sure that I'm on the right side and, and that no one picked up a book from, written by a faux academic from the other side. All, all of this is to say, Dr. Mego, that I, I think that, that game of labeling, I think the impact of labels is so overstated. I think mostly what they can do is damage just in terms of making us incurious, but also that there's even deeper, more pernicious patterns of, of inquisition going on in this stuff. And, and it's not good for me professionally It'd be much easier if I wrote hit pieces. Uh, but it's, I will never be on that side. I will never, ever yeah. be on that side. Yeah.
1: And that, that's interesting about, uh, your comment in the, the guardian. And I, I saw an inter uh, a review of your book in foreign affairs and they, they kind of had an, another, uh, angle of critique, which is that, um, that none of the people you interviewed are really important. It's just a bunch of cranks, and that this is marginal. Okay. And So therefore, it's it's really not um, it, it's it's really not uh, not that big a deal. So uh, it, it's that that's a very <laughs> you know um, yeah. a, a, another kind of uh, d- dismissive uh, um, attack. And I, I, well, do, do you want to address that? Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, I, I actually I actually liked. It was a short short review. About that, yeah, that one I was. I was, I was I was I was more okay with that one. And I'm not I'm not that invested in in the relevance or the influence of of the figures. I mean, yeah. my my American publishers made it pretty sensational in the subtitle and in some of the cover copy. But to me, this is a book. This is contemporary intellectual history. Yeah, um, it is. It is. No one could deny that at certain moments, Steve Bannon has had influence. At certain moments, Alexander Dugan has had influence, and that. Olava de Cavallo does right now. You would be f- be foolish to, to claim otherwise. hmm But that's that wasn't that's not my motivation. This is this is that's a study right. of 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 that intellectual history. So so I, I kind of just like, you know, whatever. <laughs> that's that's cool. I think it's fascinating. So yeah. I also think it, it just reflects also
1: his own, um, uh, you know, narrow-mindedness as as a liberal think tanker, basically, right? That, <laughs> that, right. So then, when something like the Iranian Revolution comes up, they'll say, "Wow, I never saw this coming. Where did this come from?" You well, know. There's that the, too. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's there's these, they don't understand how how pervasive uh, these ideas are not only in in the West. Um, on the dissident right side, which is coming more important, but you know, but also in in the uh, the you know Asia, Africa, Latin America, that, that these are not marginal at all, and and it, it shows the myopia
0: again yes. of of the, yes. of the liberal think tankers, right? So, uh, abs- abs- absolutely, absolutely, and and I think in my case, one thing that the book shows. it's quite a coincidence or an odd an anomaly that that we have these figures around the world at this broadly speaking the same historical moment that are all interested in traditionalism and as i write at the end of the book that may have less to do with traditionalism per se and more to do with as you said earlier this radical full force blunt critique of modernism and and i think it could be an expression of a widespread dissatisfaction with the status quo and that bigger picture is absolutely worth paying attention to and absolutely. and knowing that it's going to take so many different forms and appear in so many different contexts that you know that your average political beat reporter is is not going to see it and might not be it's aware right. of everything not be aware of how multifaceted how uh, how diverse the sociological milieu is that entertains if,
1: it. If, if they can only think of Republican and Democrat, they're not going to understand any of this.
0: Oh, good <laughs> grief!
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I, I, I saw a, a little interview you did with Tom Hartman, and I think you know it suffered, the, the interview suffered from that. He was just trying to put everything uh, in into <laughs> sort of you know Bill Barr you know um, Bill Barr and uh, what, whatever oh, Bill whatever Barr is
0: going Bill. on in, on the surface. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's difficult. Also, if you have work to do, if you have learning to do, it it becomes difficult when people want to get to the payload as quickly as possible. And the payload is, is Bannon is evil and dangerous. And, and I, I mean, look, I happen to think that there, that there is some real danger from, from this stuff, but I, that's not the most, that's not the first thing to talk about. And it's not always productive to talk about it either. Yeah. Uh, or to treat it like it's like it's a very rich topic um, that 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 really there's much to be said about it. You have to be willing to have an adult conversation about this. Absolutely.
1: Now, I mean, your your book focuses on on Bannon, um, and 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 that that's kind of the centerpiece that holds everything together in so many ways. Mm-hmm. But now that uh, so I, I'd like to to hear your opinion now because I mean you're, you're writing about a, a subject that's that is uh constantly evolving and changing um to where where do you see bannon going and and traditionalism going and and um and him and his movement i mean he's been you know uh, arrested and so we have i think the court case is still coming up i believe uh, and so yeah so we have all these uh, you know so it, it it looks like it's kind of on the decline trump you know it's uh, mm-hmm. Appears away on, on his way out, but you know he has his challenges
0: uh, to the process. But so, where, where do you see all this going now? It's really a question of of how traditionalists interpret the moment. If they see themselves, you know, if they see the changes that they were that they're envisioning and valorizing uh, continuing to, to take place. I don't, and I don't know the answer to, to that that question. I yeah. think I, I think that. If to the extent that right wing populism is the instrument for traditionalism, mm-hmm. if that really is the ordering and the hierarchy there, um, I'm not sure that that right wing populism is going away. Yeah. What we've seen in world politics is, I think it's it's exemplified with Joe Biden, it's exemplified with Macron, that people can stop right wing populists, but they do so with placeholders you know yeah. cent- centrism liberal centrism is not an actual alternative it's just a stopgap measure uh, a, a pause button and and it can be an effective one but w- and if if the opponents of right-wing populism want want to actually do something <laughs> they'll have to come up with an alternative and that mm-hmm. and one that speaks to concerns that are not going away and those concerns are sovereignty they could be they could be nativism as well it's not not the mm-hmm too charitable with that um sovereignty economic nationalism all of those features they're going to have to be addressed in in some way and
1: i'd like to add two things there and this is this comes from trying to understand sympathetically even views you may not agree with but you Mm -hmm. know also things like meaning in life right that they find modern life meaningless and and this is such a strong part of it it's what attracts me to to Mm -hmm. the thought right um and and then also um also masculinity the place of men right this is this is also an important part of of the attraction right because the these questions come up and and if if we don't understand what you know what, what what is the positive pull of this what needs are they addressing then yeah. all the kind of um, attacks and name calling and, and it's it's not going to work it's in fact going to push people away from where you'd like
0: them to be it will make it'll make them more desperate yeah of, yeah. of, of course um, so yeah ab- absolutely meaning i i, I think I think that if, let's say, Alexander Dugan, to the extent he's correct in saying that liberalism offers two collectivities to us—either the global mass or the isolated individual—that that's that's not going to work. Yeah, we, that does not work for people, and it's going to leave us hungry if 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 that is identity with your gender, if it's identity with your locality. And that that I'm, I'm less sure of the particularities of it, but. But this hyper hyper-individualism and the global citizen sort of thing is 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 not going to cut it. So, so all of this is to say that I I think that we are going to continue seeing a pushback against some of the features that that are the actual objects of traditionalism's critique. Mm-hmm. The mass homogenization, the materialization. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to continue perpetuating itself. Whether it does so with stamped and approved right wing populists is another another issue. I, I yeah. made a point at the end of the book to say that Steve Bannon was very inspired by the the presidential short presidential campaign of Miriam Williamson. That's right. The Democratic side. The reason it's not because she was for borders or anything, but she was willing to speak about the United States in spiritual terms, and she was willing to talk about. Our, our kind of our national destiny outside of just being an, an economy and nothing else an economy filled with free acting purchasers and consumers and mm-hmm. producers and and that excited if if that were to replace Biden and Trump let's say I do not think that Steve Bannon would think that we had missed a beat exactly in, in, the, in the bigger in the bigger change so that's why it's a hard question to ask even though I, I appreciate you ask it how they're going to view their future and how they're going to view advance and success. It, it could take very, very different turns.
1: Yeah, because if you understand, as you say, uh, and that that's a very good point, I mean, if you understand what, what it is that traditionalism is, is reacting to, um, traditionalism then becomes not the only possible reaction to those things, right? So you can have yep. a pushback against commodification from the left. In fact, that's where I discovered it first, right? It uh-huh. was the Frankfurt school, right? I mean, a, yes. a lot of traditionalist stuff is really just like a, a, a an alternative <laughs> to the Frankfurt school, right?
0: I mean, it's, uh, in content and a method, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: you know, it, it it is it addresses the same things of alienation. It's like existentialism. You know, it it, mm-hmm. it addresses the same problems, but from a different angle. And if it's not traditionalism today, it might be postmodernism tomorrow. It might be Frankfurt or It might be something else. It might be the Islamic Caliphate, right? I mean, it could be yes. so many um, other things. Hindu nationalism, you know, wh- whatever it is. And and if you don't understand what what the the, uh, the the core thing they're, uh, they're reacting to, then you're going to be constantly surprised by these movements that ap- appear to pop out of nowhere. But in fact, there's a thread, I, I, I strongly believe.
0: I Yes, yes. It's one thing I wish that I'd written in the book is that I think we could view this, at, at least from the perspective of traditionalists, let's say, mm-hmm. or from the perspective of Bannon, the desired outcome is not that the, political power moves left or right but i think in there in in his telling it would be that it moved up yeah up or yeah. down at the moment we if you know we were talking about the hindu caste system really not opposing a proper slave and a proper priest or a god but but materialism and spirituality you could map our political spectrum onto that hierarchy see a left and a right but what what matters is the is instead the vertical axis yeah Absolutely. That's that's how they think. That's you know again that that can be Aryan and inspiring. A, a critic could reasonably say that all of this talk of of spirituality and deeper meaning and things that this could just be the trappings of obscuring yeah. material material inequalities, and that and that's true. But that's where the conversation needs to take place. Regardless, exactly. that's what we need to we need to consider. That's right. Then you get to the hardcore Marxist materialist, you know, yes.
1: historical materialists, and 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 whatnot, and then you get to some nice discussions. <laughs> yes, but, but yes. I, I know your book is not a theoretical book. It's not really even a message book in that sense. Thank right? you. However, um, you know, is, is there something you'd like to leave your readers with? Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I know it's not didactic, right? But but yeah. I don't know. Is is there something you would like to
0: leave them with? Pay attention to the details. Right. Um, do not the one thing I would feel like a failure is if someone read the book and said, "Aha! Uh-huh, so traditionalism is just fascism. <laughs> this is just the latest guys." That that's not that's not true. You're you're right to say. It's been very hard to market a book without a thesis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, and and without a political constituency who you are you are peddling consensus to, that mm-hmm. you know, this really this has no target audience who you know who just love it. And but what what I hope it does is is it opens up the door to the fact that that what you have just been saying, that you cannot think in terms of left and right, mm-hmm. you have to see particularity. In the various ideas that are circling circulating around and that there's there's a broad will to to think in terms of radical alternatives to our to our status quo that that's that that pre-existing pastime is now becoming politically compelling in new ways all of all those things i i would be fine with i would also be totally okay with a reader simply being lost in the aesthetics the moods the stories and the ideas Mm -hmm. without any particular course
1: yeah, because yeah. it does capture uh, a, a very a particular moment in political time that, that uh, I, I wonder if it's going to uh, ever come back again. So, so yeah. you did a great job of yeah. capturing uh, this, this amazing uh, emergence of traditionalism uh, at, a, at a point which, as I said, I, I'm not sure whether it's going to come back or not.
0: Yeah, yeah, true, yeah. true. So,
1: well, uh, you know, I, I've kept you here long, uh, long enough, <laughs> and, uh, but I, I know, you know, you're, you know, you ju- the book's just been published, you're promoting it and whatnot, but, uh, are you working on any other projects right now that you'd like our audience to know about? Uh, you know, is there a website where people can check out not only, you know, your current work, but the work you've done in the
0: past as well? Absolutely. Ben Benjamin is a place okay. that you could, you could turn to. I am working right now. I'm very interested in melancholy and melancholia as a political pathology. Okay, and that's a long-term project. It's going to be less less easily, you know, soaked up by mainstream. Uh, sorry, there's that word again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then, then my last one, but but there's been so much talk about political nostalgia, and and I think I've been studying melancholy for a long time. I. Part of me thinks that there there are new insights to be gained by looking through that lens instead of simply nostalgia. These days, an increased attention for humanity and increased interest in withdrawal from the large collectivity and and in the the, the chaos of of the human mind. Um, I think we we can learn a lot from that. So that's what I'm working on. It's it's more theoretical and diffuse, but uh, I hope it's interesting as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, it it, it certainly is an interesting topic. But thanks so much for this interview. It's really been fascinating and enjoyable. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, likewise, Dr. Mago, it's a, a pleasure. Well, once again, the book is War for Eternity, Inside Bannon's Far Right Circle of Global Power Brokers. And we've been speaking to the author, Benjamin Teitelbaum. And thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.